Thank you. We will next hear argument in the case of Herring Networks, Inc. versus Rachel Maddow. And I believe that Mr. Siegel is first, so please proceed. Thank you. May it please the court. Good morning, Your Honors. Amnon Siegel on behalf of the appellant Herring Networks. I'd like to reserve three minutes for rebuttal. We're here, Your Honors, because defendants accused One American News Network of being, quote, really literally paid Russian propaganda. The statement directly attacks the reputation and integrity of One American News, which I'll call OAN. And it goes to the core of OAN's operation as a trusted source of news. Maddow's statement, Ms. Maddow's statement, went well beyond the information reported in the Daily Beast article and stated as fact that OAN itself is backed by Russia to disseminate pro-Russian content. Mr. Siegel, as you know, the screenshot of the Daily Beast article was on the screen right in back of Ms. Maddow when she did this segment. Wasn't it obvious that she wasn't breaking any story other than referring to the Daily Beast story? I don't believe it would have been obvious to her viewers. The Daily Beast article was published the same day, Your Honor. And so unlike a situation where there's some shared public knowledge about a piece of information like the Johnny Cochran case where the opinion columnist is talking about the O.J. Simpson trial, which everybody knew about and is writing about it years later and makes a reference to Johnny Cochran kind of doing or saying anything to win a case, something that was, you know, denigrating arguably but not defamatory. There's no shared public knowledge. Well, I take your point about the degree of dissemination at that point. But when you have a big picture of the article to which she's referring directly in back of her, she starts by referring to it. Doesn't that satisfy that element? I don't believe it does, Your Honor, because the specific statement she used is really what we're focused on. And the specific statement said, in this case, which really leads her audience to believe that the article actually says this. And most of her audience, because of the dissemination being the same day, is not going to have read the article. And they're not going to know that the article does not, in fact, state anything that OAN is paid Russian propaganda. But she says, in this case, OAN is really literally paid Russian propaganda. So she's using really literally to emphasize the truth of the statement, not to make it seem like she's just commenting on the news article, but to say, in this case. And she leads her audience to believe falsely that OAN is backed by Russia, paid by the Russian government to disseminate pro-Russian content. As I said, that really does go to the core of what OAN is all about. It's an American news network, never received money from Russia or the Russian government. This is in the excerpts of record. Let me ask you this. Let me ask you this. This is arguendo, okay? So OAN has a correspondent, a contributor, who, in fact, does do some work for a Russian, shall I say, a news network. Is it out of the realm of reasonableness to suggest that if OAN hires somebody who has those credentials, that it's not a huge stretch to say that the network itself is tainted by that, if it's a thing? I think your question perhaps goes to this argument that defendants have raised about substantial truth. And I don't believe the substantial truth has been proven at this stage of the case 
that the statement was substantially true. We can't prove, in fact, we did provide evidence demonstrating that the statement is provably and demonstrably false. But then you get to the issue of the additional evidence. Doesn't the reasoning of the Planned Parenthood case foreclose your argument that the district court erred in not considering the other evidence that you put in in connection with the motion to strike? I don't believe that's the correct interpretation of Planned Parenthood. I think if you... I know the case facts are a little different, but the reasoning, isn't that the same? No, I think actually the reasoning is what differentiates Planned Parenthood from our situation. Because the reasoning behind Planned Parenthood is if we require a plaintiff, require, and the court says require multiple times, if we require a plaintiff to submit evidence, declarations, admissible evidence, we are treating this as a summary judgment motion. And that's not fair because that violates, there's a direct conflict, an eerie conflict with Federal Rule of Civil Procedure 56 and all the procedural safeguards... But isn't that the very point though? Anti-SLAPP law is troubled in the federal courts, of course, because you don't want to get into a summary judgment situation because you want, if there is an appropriate claim of First Amendment right, you want to make it so that the speaker doesn't have to defend what was said if it fits into that category. So what I'm looking at with Planned Parenthood, it seems to say that the reasoning seems to say that this should be based on like a 12B6 analysis where no additional evidence comes in, you just look at the face of it. What am I missing? Well, Planned Parenthood says that, you're right, that the Ninth Circuit has differentiated between anti-SLAPP motions that are akin to 12B6 motions and anti-SLAPP motions based on the evidence. But when the burden is shifted on the second prong of the anti-SLAPP, the burden is shifted onto the plaintiff to prove its case, okay? I would say that when you're trying, when a defendant is trying to take advantage of the anti-SLAPP and the fees and costs that come along with that in federal court, the defendant makes a choice and I think the plaintiff should have a right to submit evidence. The defendant can say, and the court can say, we've considered the evidence, it doesn't change our analysis. Or the defendant can say, we'd like to respond substantively to that evidence. And I get, you make a good policy argument from your perspective, but let's just argue and say, if you cannot introduce the additional evidence, don't you lose? No, I don't believe that. And why not? I think we win under the Rule 12B6 standard because remember, the defendant's burden is a high one, Your Honor. Let's not forget. I don't want to be too distracted by the other evidence, although I think it's an important policy issue. The legal standard here, and there's no dispute about it, the relevant question for the court, for the district court and for this court, is not whether the statement might be labeled opinion or even whether 90% of the people in the world are going to think it's opinion. It's whether any reasonable fact finder, any ordinary viewer could conclude, might conclude, that the statement implies an assertion of objective fact, that the statement is a factual assertion. We actually submitted evidence of one viewer that did. And on top of that, the other evidence we submitted, which really buttresses the conclusion is important here, Ms. Maddow's own statements, her own words, the way she used the term literally in prior segments to emphasize the truth of a statement, to emphasize that it was a factual assertion. She herself uses literally to mean truth. And then I can't remember whether it was your complaint or some other aspect of the evidence, but I think you referred to her as a liberal commentator and basically spinning things to the left and so on. Wouldn't that color how we and the, in quotes, reasonable viewer should look 
at what was said? Wouldn't it be viewed as spin, if you will? Well, I'm going to agree with the first part of your question and disagree with the second part. The first part I agree with is that, yes, I'm not going to tell you there are certain factors you shouldn't look at. You have to look at everything. It's the totality of the circumstances, as the Ninth Circuit has said. Absolutely. But the totality of the circumstances, the context here, does not negate the impression that a reasonable viewer, that an ordinary viewer, would interpret that particular statement. In this case, One American News really literally is paid Russian propaganda. It does not. The context does not negate the impression that there, at that point, Ms. Maddow was making a statement of fact. And by the way, the fact that Ms. Maddow sprinkles in some commentary, that's not uncommon. We see that throughout defamation cases. In fact, we have many defamation cases cited by both sides where it's quite common for the party or the speaker to both sprinkle in opinions that are non-actionable and defamatory statements of fact. And the court's job is to weed through it. The fact that there's only one statement of fact that we're suing on here doesn't mean that we lose. I mean, in fact, the court's, the fact that we didn't bring all the other statements in shows we're being reasonable because we're focusing on the false assertions of fact, the false statements of fact. So yes, Ms. Maddow's political views are relevant, but let's also remember her own statements are certainly relevant too, which is I'm providing useful information. Not only are they relevant, but isn't that her trademark, if you will? That's what she does. She is a representative of that particular perspective. Doesn't that affect how the anti-SLAPP legislation applies here? Well, respectfully, I think it's a question for the jury. I think that some jurors may think everything she said in that story is non-actionable opinion because that's just what Rachel Maddow does. Don't believe anything she says. She's always engaging in rhetorical flourishes and hyperbole. But I think other viewers and certainly people, one viewer that read it, and based on the way Ms. Maddow presents herself, she presents herself to her viewers as essentially apolitical. She's not trying to get anybody elected. She's saying, I'm trying to help people understand what's going on in the world. So when she makes a statement like that, it's entirely natural and expectable that her viewers, ordinary viewers, would interpret her statements to be factual. Let me take a look at the statement itself and see what's opinion and what is fact here. It seems to me that the opinion is that really literally is paid Russian propaganda. And that's followed then by a statement of fact, a disclosed fact. The reason that opinion is being given is because the political reporter is paid by the Russian government. So what's wrong with that? It's an opinion based upon a disclosed fact. Maybe the fact is wrong, but it is disclosed. Well, I think that the problem with that argument is that you're assuming and accepting defendant's argument that it is in fact an opinion. And that question of whether it is an opinion, the statement that OAN is really literally paid Russian propaganda, you can't assume it's an opinion based on disclosed facts unless you assume it's an opinion in the first place. And I don't think you can make that assumption because of the high bar that is placed on the defendants here. When you look at the lead up to the statement is kind of her surprise. I mean, what she says? I mean, it's an easy thing to throw out, you know, like an epitaph in the Trump era. But then when she shifts to her factual statement, and by the way, she has factual assertions throughout the story. When she shifts between opinion and fact, she doesn't, she says in this case, OAN is really literally paid Russian propaganda. The following statement, I believe is calculatedly ambiguous. 
And the ambiguity is that she leads her viewers to believe that this particular on-air reporter is producing propaganda for the Russian government on OAN. She doesn't say on Sputnik. She says their on-air U.S. politics reporter is paid by the Russian government to produce propaganda for that government. So it doesn't clarify and it doesn't fix the problem. Do you want to save any of your time for rebuttal? It's entirely up to you, Mr. Siegel. I would like. Let's save the remainder of my time. Thank you. Very well. Mr. Boutros. Thank you, Your Honor. May it please the court, Theodore Boutros for the appellees. The district court got it right in this court to affirm the dismissal of Herring's defamation complaint. The First Amendment in California law protects Ms. Maddow's comment that OAN, quote, really literally is paid Russian propaganda because it is a classic example of opinion laced with rhetorical hyperbole based on truthful, fully disclosed facts from the Daily Beast article. Herring is isolating on those six words stripped of context, a myopic approach that the Supreme Court and this court have rejected because it would destroy the breathing space for lively and informative debate about public issues that the First Amendment protects. We can't have speech police parsing the words the way Herring is doing here. It would really chill valuable speech. And as Judge Smith, I think you were pointing out, Ms. Maddow made clear throughout her three and a half minute segment that she was offering her commentary, her spin, her take, her interpretation, her characterization and her own personal views and opinions about the Daily Beast story about OAN. And she described it. This was the whole topic of the segment. It was about the story, which she called the single most likely sparkly story of the entire day. As you know, Herring desired to provide a lot of additional evidence that it believed would frame and properly present what was said in light of other information. What's your take on what role, if any, the logic of the Planned Parenthood case should play in our analysis of whether extra evidence can be admitted in an anti-SLAPP setting like this? The logic of Planned Parenthood, Judge Smith, is dispositive here. The court in Planned Parenthood said that in order to avoid a conflict between the state, the California anti-SLAPP statute and the federal rules of civil procedure, a motion filed by a defendant that attacks the pleadings must be treated as a Rule 12b6 motion. And therefore, that's what we did. We filed what is essentially a Rule 12b6 motion on the pleadings, challenging the legal sufficiency of the pleading. And so Iqbal and Twomley from the Supreme Court apply, and no other evidence can be introduced. It would be a conflict if the plaintiff were able to defeat a Rule 12b6 motion by throwing in other evidence. Ordinarily, the case will be dismissed without prejudice, and the party would then have an opportunity to offer facts that would make it plausible to sustain the complaint. But here, that has been foreclosed. It was dismissed with prejudice, so there is no opportunity to offer facts permitted. You mentioned Twomley. Twomley is looking for facts that make the case a plausible one. Shouldn't the plaintiff be given that opportunity here? Well, here, Your Honor, 
a couple of things. First, the plaintiff, Herring, never asked the district judge for leave to amend. They didn't do it in their opposition to our motion to strike. They didn't do it during the hearing where the judge gave Mr. Siegel what she called re-re-re-re-rebuttal, and it looked like things were going to go against Herring during the hearing. That's why I believe Mr. Siegel kept responding. And Herring didn't ask for a chance to amend. In the local rules, in the Gardner case, the Partington case from this court, the court affirmed dismissal with prejudice because it would have been futile to allow the plaintiff to try to amend, and that's what the district court found here. And the district court was aware of this evidence. It reviewed it and found that even with this evidence, Herring would not be able to present a viable legal claim. So under those circumstances, it was well within the district court's discretion that Herring waived the motion to amend. Under the local rules, they were required to submit their proposed amended complaint so the district court could analyze it, and they didn't do that. They did in a motion to supplement the record to add a completely irrelevant statement by Chris Matthews that post-dated Ms. Maddow's show. In passing, they said, well, we should be allowed to amend to add this, and then they said it was unnecessary. So the district court acted within its discretion, and this is really a pure legal issue. None of the facts they submitted advanced the ball at all. The facts, the undisputed facts, are the Daily Beast article, and they have not challenged one word of that as being false. And Ms. Maddow's broadcast, which was clearly, if we apply the totality of the circumstances test, no reasonable viewer would have thought she was breaking news with a new fact. It was all about the Daily Beast article, and she quoted it. I counted up five times where she quoted or paraphrased the core fact, including the title of the, what starts with the title of the article, which is that Trump's new favorite channel employs Kremlin-paid journalists. And she said it before, and Judge Robrena, as you noted, immediately after. She explained so that the viewer would have known exactly what she was talking about when she made the propaganda comment. She was talking about the fact that the Daily Beast had reported that OAN's on-air correspondent was also paid by Sputnik, the Russian propaganda arm. So like in the letter carrier's case, the Greenbelt case, the context made clear she was commenting. She was giving her interpretation and expressing her amusement and her disdain for the fact that a U.S. network would employ someone who was also employed by Sputnik. She was expressing her astonishment. And there's just no, as the district court found, no way a reasonable viewer would have thought, oh, she had some other fact. And she doesn't say that Russia was paying OAN, as Mr. Siegel suggested. She doesn't say that Russia owned OAN or anything like that. She is explaining and characterizing, expressing her opinion that a network that employs a Sputnik reporter is transforming itself into Russian propaganda. And the other thing that I wanted to address, Your Honors, is that Herring has argued, and Mr. Siegel said it today, that there was nothing in the Daily Beast article that suggested that OAN was broadcasting Russian propaganda. That's incorrect, and they haven't challenged the article. The article, Daily Beast article, says, quote, Kremlin propaganda sometimes sneaks into Ruse's segments. And they quoted an FBI agent, and Herring doesn't challenge this, who said, quote, this completes the merger between Russian state-sponsored propaganda 
and American conservative media. And then they, the Daily Beast article quotes and gives examples of uh, things that came right out of Vladimir Putin's uh, playbook and, and, and Sputnik's playbook that appeared in Mr. Ruse's reports on OAN. So uh, this is not a close call. It was fully disclosed. Um, as Judge Smith, you were pointing out, it, just when she made the comment about propaganda, the quote and the title of the article were on screen, and she was laughing about it, literally at the same moment, because she was astonished by it. So it, this is the quintessential imaginative expression, rhetorical hyperbole, opinion, based on truthful disclosed facts that this court, in a really rich body of opinions that this court has issued, Partington, Gardner, Cochran, uh, the the the, the um, evil Knievel case, where the word pimp in context was deemed to be opinion, rhetorical hyperbole, colorful language, uh, where this court has said the First Amendment protects that. We need people in a debate about public issues to speak freely, to not have their words, you know, picked through by this expert opinion, which does not is not properly considered on a legal issue. This court has held that many times. Certainly not allowed to be submitted to defeat a motion to dismiss in, under the federal rules. So I think when we look at the context, the broad context, as this court has said in uh, in, in its cases, it's, it is a show that has news, but also it's known for the fact that Ms. Maddow, in, in the words of Herring, gives a liberal perspective, uh, progressive perspective, but also interprets and analyzes and gives her own take on the news of the day. And here, it was that's what she was doing. She was talking about the Daily Beast story and only the Daily Beast story. As the district court found, there was no implication of some additional fact. Um, and it's her show. It's, it's where re she is providing her interpretation, characterizations, views ab about the news. Would, would um, you give your take on, you, I mentioned and you picked up on the point about the Planned Parenthood case. If, if the court adopts Mr. Siegel's perspective, in effect, that uh, in fact does away with the anti-slap provisions purpose, right? Uh, in, in the sense that you end up with a summary judgment uh, situation, Rule 56, and you've got to go into discovery, you've got all additional evidence and so on, and so the, all of a sudden the speech that's supposed to be in quotes protected is tied up in expensive and perhaps lengthy litigation. Would you address that? Do you agree with that? Exactly. That the, it, would, it would both defeat the anti-slap statute's purpose and Rule 12b-6's purpose of allowing speedy dismissal without discovery. And so the anti-slap statute was meant to avoid exactly this kind of frivolous defamation suit that focuses on a couple words, throws in, kicks up some dust, and says, well, we get to have discovery, we get to, we get to now litigate this case. Um, and the, the, the burden of the discovery, the cost of discovery, the, the, the chilling effect that has was one of the key reasons why the anti-slap statute uh, was enacted, as well as the attorney's fees. And we, those are, we believe, as this court has, I think, pretty clearly held, uh, those are substantive rights. Um, and then as to 12b-6, it would mean the, a statute that was meant to allow quick dismissal in California would, would be thwarted, and then as Iqbal and Twomley talked about this in detail, that the ability to get a dismissal under 12b-6 protects the defendant 
from all the costs, all the burdens, and all the invasions, and that has a particular resonance in the First Amendment context where New York Times versus Sullivan was premised on the notion that the litigation itself can have a chilling effect on speech about matters of public concern. So I think it's just very straightforward application of Planned Parenthood here. And, you know, the plaintiff is focused in on the really literally language. And again, they've said, well, you know, if there are different definitions of it, then it goes to the jury. That's just not correct. In all of these cases where the question is would a reasonable viewer or reader in context have viewed the definite, could view the definition in the way the plaintiff is arguing. In, I mentioned it, letter carriers, Greenbelt, the court said, well, yeah, blackmail, traitor was used. You can prove those true or false, but in context, the viewer would have known or the reader would have known that the author was talking about the matter that was disclosed. And here, that is disclosed. Mr. Siegel makes the argument that the standard we should be considering here is whether any reasonable viewer would have viewed this statement as being factual. Would you address that, please? Sure, Your Honor. I think that the standard is whether a reasonable viewer could have, could view this as stating an undisclosed fact, an objective fact. And here, because of the fact that it was, the objective facts were disclosed. Ms. Maddow was describing the reported facts, which have not been challenged, which are truthful. Because she made that clear at least five times, including immediately after she, the six words were spoken that are being challenged, no reasonable viewer would have and could have thought that she was reporting on or relying on some other undisclosed fact. Does it matter, as Mr. Siegel suggested, that the, if you will, the article, the content of the Daily Beast article was not then well known? The examples he gave suggested other things like Rodney King and so on, where everybody knew about it. Does it matter whether the Daily Beast article was well known in our analysis? Not at all, Your Honor. It can be a factor, I think, in the Johnny Cochran case that was a factor. But in that case, the columnist had not laid out the facts. The columnist had just referred to the O.J. Simpson trial and then made the disparaging comment about Mr. Cochran. Here, and I went back and looked at the level of disclosure in this court's cases and in the Supreme Court's cases of the facts upon which an opinion was being given. This probably breaks the record because it was up on the screen. Ms. Maddow walked through it, said repeatedly that the astounding, ridiculous fact to her was that a U.S. network would be, have an on-air correspondent who was being paid by the Russian propaganda outfit. That was the story. And again, Judge Smith, you picked up on a point I wanted to make. It's well within the breathing space of the First Amendment for Ms. Maddow or someone who was watching the show to say, you know, if you do that, you are Russian propaganda. I think you are Russian propaganda. Viewers could disagree with that and say, well, it's different. But that's a perfectly in-bounds opinion and observation here, and particularly where the Daily Beast article itself disclosed that Russian propaganda was included in Mr. Ruse's pieces for OAN. And OAN can say, no, we're not Russian propaganda. Different viewers could take a different position. That's opinion. That's the kind of robust, wide-open debate, vehement, caustic, humorous, biting, denigrating, 
sort of debate about important public issues that New York Times versus Sullivan and the First Amendment protect. Your time is up. Let me ask my colleague whether either has additional questions for Mr. Boutros. No, thank you. Nothing for me. Thank you. Mr. Siegel, you have some rebuttal time. Please proceed. Thank you, Your Honor. I wanted to address Judge Smith's question about whether this would defeat the anti-SLAPP statute's purpose, and I really don't believe it would. The anti-SLAPP statute, as you know, is state law that says the court shall consider affidavits. We're asking the court to consider our evidence, our declarations, and our other evidence submitted. We believe that the district court should consider the evidence, and that the district court has, frankly, discretion to determine whether additional discovery is necessary. That was not the issue before the district court. But didn't the district court actually look at this evidence and then found it that it would be futile? No, I don't believe the district court did, actually. If you read the ruling at page 6, this is excerpts of record page 6, the district court specifically said, I will not consider the evidence. The evidence is excluded. The statements about futility at the end are really, I mean, boilerplate, you know, the necessary statements to not give us leave to amend. But she did not state, I considered the evidence. Let me follow up on that. What specifically in this evidence would warrant a change in outcome? Well, I mentioned in the opening Ms. Maddow's own statements. Okay. Literally, Ms. Maddow's own statements to the New York Times Magazine about what the purpose of her show is. Her mantra is to provide good, true stories. We're talking about truth here. She's not providing the truth about One American News. And she's not couching it in terms of opinion either. She's saying, in this case, they really literally are paid Russian propaganda. And she's doing it very deliberately, and it's extremely damaging to the network. I wanted to also address, so I mentioned the point about the district court excluding the evidence. I don't believe it's correct that the district court considered the evidence. Let me just address that for a second, because as I understand it, we as federal courts have wrestled with how to apply the anti-SLAPP rules, whether they should apply at all in federal court. And the way that we seem to have, if you will, sliced the problem is by saying, if we're treating this as a 12B6, i.e. no new additional evidence approach, it works. If we treat it as a summary judgment, it doesn't work. Am I missing something? That's what the Ninth Circuit has said, but the Ninth Circuit hasn't. The Ninth Circuit's really important, you know. I know, I've heard that. The Ninth Circuit has not addressed, this court has not addressed this particular question, which is, can we consider the plaintiff's evidence? I understand the court has said there's a distinction between a 12B6 and a summary judgment, but I actually think the court is doing harm to the anti-SLAPP statute when a defendant tries to take advantage of it in federal court by precluding, prohibiting, blocking any and all attempts by plaintiffs to submit evidence. The last point I wanted to make, I see my time is up, is you've got to look at the Andy Rooney case. The Andy Rooney case is incredible. This is a man who made his living off of satire, humor, comedy, rhetorical hyperbole, over-the-top, comedic nature. That was what he was all about. It only takes one statement, and he learned that in Unelco Court v. Rooney when the Ninth Circuit made it very clear, this is one of the early totality of the circumstance cases, 1990, and it says it only takes one statement that can be construed as a factual assertion, even though his whole segment was characterized by hyperbole, as all of his segments are. By the way, Ms. Maddow is a news reporter. She's on a news agency and a news channel. She's much less of a satirist or a commentator than Andy Rooney ever was, and in that case, the court found whether it's factual or whether it's opinion should be resolved by the jury because we cannot say as a matter of law that the statement was false. Thank you, Your Honor. Thank you, Counsel. The case just argued will be submitted for decision.
that it is a statement of opinion. We appreciate it. Let me ask my colleague first. Do either of my colleagues have additional questions for Mr. Siegel? I do not. Thank you. So we thank both counsel. This is obviously a very interesting case, an important case, and we appreciate the lawyerly perspective and skill that you have both applied. We will consider the arguments and make a decision. And the case just argued is submitted, and the court stands adjourned for the day. Thank you, Your Honors. Thank you. This court for this session stands adjourned.